Well, let's turn in our scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's read together the first nine verses of this epistle. I don't actually intend for these nine verses to be our primary text, but they'll serve as an introduction to another passage I'll have us turn to in a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1, let's read verses 1 through 9. This is the word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an, inherit, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season... If need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's inerrant word. The grass withereth and the flower thereof fadeth away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Peter here is writing to suffering Christians. He refers to them in verse number one as strangers or exiles or foreigners because that's just what they are. This world is not their home and they're increasingly out of place here. They're strangers and they're pilgrims who serve another king and are on their way to another place. And of course, that's a description of every Christian, not just the specific Christians that he's writing to in the first century, but every Christian is a pilgrim, is a stranger, is an exile, is a foreigner. Hebrews 11 talks about the patriarchs saying, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off 
and were persuaded of them and embraced them, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul wrote, Our conversation or our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't just refer to them as strangers in verse 1, but as scattered strangers. These exiles were beginning to feel their pilgrim status more and more. They'd been driven out of their homes. And so Peter refers to them as scattered strangers. And this too is something that every growing Christian knows to some degree or another an increasing incompatibility, an increasing discomfort with the spirit of the age. God is working to change us. Sanctification is a process of being made holy, and holiness is nonconformity. And so the more holy a person is, the more out of step they will be with the spirit of the age. And so in a sense, when he calls them strangers scattered in verse number one, it's full of hope. It implies that God's working in them to change them. And it also implies, does it not, that their suffering is temporary. If there's something, it's going to be a, a change in the future. They're strangers, they're pilgrims, they're exiles, but one day they will reach their home. No more a stranger but like a child at home. But Peter's aim in writing to these people is not to produce people who just relish the fact that they're different for different sake, who just relish the fact that they're nonconformists. His aim is to produce worshipers, joyful worshipers. He's calling these people to a jubilant, enthusiastic worship. Look at verse number 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. Or in verse number 8. Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. He's calling them to a joyful worship that comes to them because they know their God. And they know what their God has provided for them. They may be strangers in this world. And they may be aliens and they may be pilgrims. They may be outcasts who do not belong and who are not appreciated. But there is a place where they do belong. And there is a world where they do fit in. And there is a coming inheritance that they will receive. And it will be a place where God makes good on all of his promises that he's made to them and provided for them in Jesus Christ. And so he begins to speak of that inheritance in verse number four. He calls it an incorruptible inheritance. No moth, no rust, thieves do not break in and steal. It's incorruptible. It's an undefiled inheritance. It's not mingled with anything impure. You know how earthly inheritances often come with dangers attached. A man can receive a great inheritance and it be a great snare unto him. This inheritance is undefiled. No danger or anything ensnaring in it at all. And then he says it fadeth not away which seems like the same thing as incorruptible, 
until you think a little bit about that and say, okay, what that probably means, therefore, is that my enjoyment of it never fades away. That what it is to me never wears out. It never will lose its beauty. It will never become boring or commonplace. It never fades away. And then he says in verse 4, it's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And oh, what a blessing this is. Because this inheritance, this inheritance is reserved for you and you are reserved for it. Now, isn't that a blessing? A double security here at the end of verse 4 and beginning of verse 5. The inheritance is reserved for the believer. And then verse 5, the believer is reserved for the inheritance. A double keeping, a double security for those who are in Jesus Christ. He says we're kept by the power of God Unto salvation. Well, what does that mean? Unto salvation. Remember that the New Testament speaks of salvation in really in, in three different senses. We can think of our salvation as something that's past. We have been saved. We've been pardoned. We've been justified. We can think of salvation as something that is present and ongoing. We are, are being delivered from the dominating power of sin. That's our sanctification. We're being made holy. And then you can also think of salvation as something future, when we will receive the end of our salvation, which is the saving of our souls, when we will be made perfect and sinless with glorified bodies and will enjoy uninterrupted fellowship with God to all eternity. That's the end of our salvation. There's a past and a present and a future aspect to this salvation. And so he's speaking there of that future aspect of the, of the resurrection of the body, of being in the company of just men made perfect. And then he says that that keeping by the power of God, unto salvation is through faith. See that in the middle of verse 5. It's through faith. How does God guard his children and, and reserve them for that inheritance that he has established for them? He's given them this inheritance. He's reserved it for them. He says that now I'm going to reserve you for it. Okay, how does he do that? He does it through faith. He does it by preserving their faith. What makes you think that tomorrow morning you'll wake up a believer in Jesus Christ? It's just the faithfulness of God that he, began, he that began a good work in you shall perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And so this is the theme that I want us to focus in on this morning. Believers are kept by the power of God through faith. Genuine believers will persevere steadfast all the way to the end. 
but that perseverance is not due to their own discipline or exertion in keeping the faith. They don't possess the power to keep themselves. You and I do not possess their wherewithal to keep ourselves in the faith. God's people are kept by the power of God through faith. It's God who keeps and guards and secures his people. And the way that he does that, the way that he accomplishes this is by guarding and securing their faith. He doesn't just powerfully keep them in a vacuum. He powerfully and keeps them through faith. You're aware that many people have abused the doctrine of eternal security. And they've turned it into a presumptuous, once saved, always saved decisionism. As as if some childhood decision locks someone in no matter what the next decades of their life look like. The promise of eternal security is not made to all who make an outward profession of faith. It's a promise that once God grants faith, he guards it so that the person keeps on believing. That's what we call the perseverance of the saints. Believers are kept by the power of God through faith. He does not promise to keep us apart from faith. He keeps us by his power through faith. He keeps our faith from failing. He keeps our faith from being extinguished. He powerfully sustains our faith. Believers are kept by the power of God through faith. Now, Who's writing this? Peter. I wonder if you can think of the perfect illustration of this happening in the life of a believer. What event does Peter have in mind? If this passage is not already cross-referenced for you in some kind of note in your Bible... You ought to pencil it in. It's the perfect cross-reference to 1 Peter 1.5. It's Luke chapter 22 and verse number 31. And that's what we're going to take as our text this morning. Luke chapter 22 and verses 31 and 32. Did you come up with this? Could you think of this episode? In the life of the Apostle Peter. Here we are in the night that Jesus was betrayed. And in Luke twenty two thirty one, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. It had to be 
that the Apostle Peter had those events burned into his mind. It had to be the inspiration for what he wrote in 1 Peter 1.5. When he spoke of that inheritance, he had to go on and say, it's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith. And Peter knew that in his own experience, didn't he? In these two verses, we have one of those times when the curtain is pulled back and we see something that we could have had no knowledge of whatsoever if it had not been recorded for us in Scripture. The night of our Lord's arrest, Satan demanded to have Peter and to sift him as wheat. But Jesus prayed for Peter. He interceded that his faith would not fail. That though Peter would fall hard in denying the Lord three times, that he would not fall utterly away into apostasy. That he would fall, but his faith would not fail. And this is such an encouraging example to us of God's promise to keep his people. And it can be such an encouraging promise and and example to us because of the magnitude of Peter's failure in this episode. It's one thing to read the testimony of the Apostle Paul at the end of his life and to say, I finished my course, I've kept the faith. And to acknowledge that God kept him and God gave grace to him to finish his course and to keep his faith. But here in the experience of Peter, we see God's powerful preserving and persevering in the context of a huge moral failure. You can't find a bigger fall than Peter's fall that night. And truth be told, this is when the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints bothers us a little bit. It's when we've taken a fall. It's when we've taken a hit. It's when we've failed. It's when we've fallen and fallen hard and by the devices of Satan, our own flesh. And so for this reason, this is an example of God's persevering power that is calculated to encourage us and to give us hope that God preserves the faith of his people, that believers in Christ are kept by the power of God through faith. So the episode all begins with God's knowledge, with the Lord's knowledge. First of all, a knowledge of Simon Peter. I think it's so interesting that he addresses Peter as Simon. That has to be significant, don't you think? He doesn't say, Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you. He says, Simon, Simon. Now, what would be the significance of using his given name rather than the name that Christ gave him? 
when he became a disciple. Well, you know what Peter means. The word Peter means rock or stone. And the Lord knew that this night, Peter was not going to be rock-like. He was not going to be like a stone. He was not going to be sure and steadfast. The old Simon was going to rear his ugly head on this night. There would be nothing strong and stable about Peter. The old, weak, and cowardly, and unstable Peter would appear. And Christ knew it. Peter didn't know it. But Christ knew it. And it is remarkable that in the light of that knowledge of how unworthy Peter would prove to be of the Lord Jesus, that Christ did not abandon Peter. I think believers think often of this truth. Christ had thorough knowledge of all of my sins of all of my failures, of all of my hypocrisy, of all of my unfaithfulness. He knew ahead of time all the times that I would grieve him, all the times that I would squander his blessings and be presumptuous with them. And he saved me anyway. And he loves me in spite of it all. And you see this here. The Lord calls Simon's name. He repeats it, Simon, Simon. And you can almost hear the depths of compassion in our Savior's voice. It's as if Jesus issues this warning that he sees in his mind's eye going forward that Peter is going to go out and he's going to weep bitterly. He can already project, he can see that ahead of time. The Lord knew Peter. And he was full of tenderness and compassion to him. The Lord knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. The Lord's knowledge of Simon is where this all begins. And it also also begins with a knowledge of the devil. The Lord had a knowledge of Satan as well, didn't he? Satan knew his place, or the Lord knew Satan's place. The Lord knew Satan's actions. He knew his speech, he knew his intentions, he knew his design. He foretold the work of his adversary. How enraged must Satan be at this fact? That he cannot hide from the omniscience of Jesus Christ. He's exposed all the time to the all-seeing God. He, he can, there's nowhere he can go. There's no guise that he can assume. There's nothing he can say. He's nothing, there's nothing he can plan or think, but that God knows it all entirely, the end from the beginning. Furthermore, when Satan sets his designs on an individual person, he must obtain permission from the Lord to trouble them. How this must enrage the devil that he is so much under the sovereign hand of our God. And I think it's very important to be reminded 
often in our Christian lives that the devil is God's devil. That Satan only operates within the parameters established by God. And he can never go outside of them. Nothing Satan does is a surprise to God. Nothing Satan does is outside of the will of God. He only operates within parameters and limitations that are established by God. He's the servant of God. He's God's lapdog, Luther said. He can only do what God permits him to do. And so it begins with the Lord's knowledge, a compassionate, tender knowledge of Simon Peter, and a knowledge of the devil which shows his superiority over him in every respect. And the next thing the passage reveals to us is the enemy's intention. What was the intention of the enemy of Satan here? He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. And you might even see that the words to have are in italics. So you could read it, Satan hath desired you. That word desired It's the only time this Greek word appears in the New Testament. It's a specific word. It's an intense word. It's the word for ask with the prefix on the beginning that intensifies it. It's the word demand. The word demand. Not just ask politely. Satan demanded you. He demanded to have you. And what was his object? What was his intention? What did he desire? What did he demand? Well, it was to sift Peter as wheat. And it isn't just an intention with Peter that he may sift you as wheat. Look at the verse again. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. That's a plural. And you can know that without knowing any Greek at all. That's just how the authorized version operates. If the pronoun is thee or thou, it's a singular. And if it's you, it's a plural. And so he's not just speaking of Satan's demand for Peter. It's Satan's demand for all of the disciples of Jesus Christ. Satan has made this demand of you and I as well. Satan hath desired to have you all. This is Satan's intention for every person who names the name of Jesus Christ. His intention is to sift them. His intention is to sift you. Now what is this sifting? Well, it's an image that was taken from the everyday life of the people that Jesus was among but that really has lost, lost something in our culture, so it needs some explanation. It comes from the process of harvesting wheat and going from wheat growing in the field to flour. And that was, an, that was a time-consuming process. And really it had to go in several steps. After you've cut the wheat down and you have these stalks, with the wheat on the end, you know that the objective is to get the kernels without the chaff on them by themselves. And now think about how difficult that really is. How do you get those little seeds, those little kernels on the end of the stalk? 
how do you get them separated from the chaff, all in a pile, all by themselves, with any kind of efficiency? Well, there's three steps to the process. First of all, there was the threshing. When you would take bundles of the cut wheat and you would pound them or perhaps drive an ox over them just to break everything up. Okay, but of course that doesn't really accomplish much in and of itself. Now you just have a pile of trampled wheat on the threshing floor. The next thing you do is called winnowing. And so you take that pile with a pitchfork and you scoop it and you lift it up into the breeze. And the breeze would carry away anything that is light and everything heavy, like the kernels, would fall down to the ground. So that will take care of some of it, but you really still haven't accomplished much. Because now all you're left with, I mean, you might have gotten some chaff away, and you might have gotten some of the stalks away, but you still have a pile of stalks, chaff, kernels, all separated. And now you've also picked up the dirt and the pebbles and things from the threshing floor. And so the third step is the sifting where you would take handfuls of whatever was left from, from threshing and winnowing, and you would put it into a sieve. And these sieves in this part of the world in that time period were like, think of like a big two-foot tambourine. Okay, so this big dish with uh, woven grasses making a mesh um, on the bottom of it that had little tiny holes that were not large enough for the kernels to go through, but were large enough for dirt and other debris to go through. And so someone who's skilled could put a couple handfuls in the sieve and they could shake it back and forth at an angle. And as they shake it back and forth, sometimes blowing on it, the, they blow on the stuff and the light stuff goes away. And then the dirt would fall through the holes in the bottom. And the heavy stuff would fall to the bottom of the sieve. And the light stuff would go to the top of the sieve. And the kernels would be in the middle. And as they shake it really well, that would happen. They'd scoop up the kernels, put them in the bag, and start all over again. So sifting wheat is the process of violently shaking the wheat in order to separate it. In order to separate it. So now transfer the image. Think of Satan with this giant sieve full of people. And his sieve has holes in it. And the only people that can fall through the holes are people that don't have faith in Christ. And what he aims to do is to violently shake them so they're so torn and so weak and so desperate that they let go of their faith and then they fall through the sieve right into Satan's company, right through the holes in the bottom of the sieve. Have you ever felt like that's happening to you? Violently shaken. We have expressions for the state of our spirits in times like that. We're all up in the air. We're off balance. We can't get our bearings. We're disoriented in our thinking. We're scrambled. There are times when the believer is under direct demonic attack and there are a multiplicity of unsettling troubles that come into our lives all at once. This is the sifting. The sifting of Satan designed to separate us from Christ. 
and therefore to separate and, and by doing that separating us from eternal life and to do so he must separate us from our faith in Christ it's an attack on our faith and it is his intention to sift to violently shake all who name the name of Jesus Christ and oh how this ought to remind us of how fragile we are how weak and unstable we are especially in the light of Peter here and what he how he responds to this in verse number 33 he says to the lord Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Oh, Peter, you didn't even see it coming. You didn't even realize how weak you are. And the minute we say that about Peter, we have to say it about ourselves as well. All of us think that we have more faith than we actually do. How weak and fragile we really are. There really are no such thing as spiritual marines. There are no macho disciples who can handle anything by their own strength. At our core, we are plagued with the same weakness as Peter. And how we ought to tremble. So is there any hope? Well, we've seen the Lord's knowledge and the Lord's intent, or, and, and Satan's intention. But Satan's not the only one with an intention here. The Lord has an intention as well. He intends something in this. So he says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. And now comes one of the most precious phrases in all of scripture but I have prayed for thee now stop there for a moment what would you like Jesus to pray for you Satan has an intention of sifting you in his sieve trying to separate you from Christ and from your faith in him. What would you have Jesus to pray? Lord, don't let him sift me. Don't let him sift me. Keep me out of his sieve. That's not what Jesus prays for, is it? He permits the sifting. Now, why would he do that? If he's going to permit the sifting, then it must mean that we need the sifting. We need it. We need to be sifted. There is a lot of dirt and pebbles and chaff and stalks that remain in our faith. And it is God's intention that we be pure grain. Or take another spiritual metaphor in scripture. Our faith is like gold. In fact, it's more precious than gold because gold perishes. But there are impurities in our faith. 
There's still a measure of skepticism and doubt and self-righteousness. There are other reliances and other dependencies. There are things that are not yet yielded over to Christ's lordship in our lives. There are idols that we keep fleeing to. And God's intention is to remove those impurities from our faith so that we have left over the precious gold. And we know how that occurs. It occurs in the refiner's fire, which is why Peter is the one who says, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. As your faith is purified and proved genuine, you're prepared to glorify and honor Jesus at his appearing because an unfeigned faith honors Christ. It shows him to be trustworthy and strong and reliable. And the Lord will often use Satan to accomplish this design. He allows Satan to assault the believer. He allows Satan to sift the believer. But not that Satan would get his intention, but that God would get his intention. It's Satan's intention to separate us from our faith by that sifting. It's God's intention that our faith would be strengthened in that sifting and that all the impurities of it would be separated from it. His intention is that the believer might emerge from the sifting with a more pure faith. Remember the case of Job. God allowed Satan to sift Job. And in the end, Job reached a new level of repentance, a new level of worship in the midst of his pain, and his faith endured and was proven to be genuine. And what is it that guarantees that God gets his intention with the believer and Satan doesn't get his intention? It's the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I have prayed for thee. The Lord's intercession. Isn't it risky for God to take this course of action? To allow our arch enemy to sift us with the intention of separating us from our faith. Isn't it risky? What if his sifting is so severe that Satan succeeds in separating a believer from his faith? Can't happen. Because while the believer permits Satan to sift us... All the while, he's interceding for us. And he's praying that our faith would not fail. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And is there any question as to the outcome of the prayers of Jesus Christ? His, the outcome of his requests is certain. He is the well-beloved Son of God. He's the perfect Son of God. 
The outcome is never in doubt of his prayers. They're always certain. Jesus, just like the Holy Spirit, prays according to the will of God. That's what Romans 8 says. The persons of the Trinity are one in their purpose and in their mind regarding believers. So Jesus prays that Satan, that that Peter's faith would not fail. And did God answer that prayer? You say, well, I don't know. I mean, Peter fell. Peter fell. He did fail. He did fall. But his faith did not fail. It didn't die out. It didn't run out. It didn't crumble and collapse upon itself into nothingness. Peter's faith was not shipwrecked. He didn't come to absolute ruin. What is it that separated Judas Iscariot from Peter? Judas fell too. And Judas fell and then he went out and hanged himself. Peter fell, and you could make a case that Peter's fall was worse than Judas's fall because Peter was warned about it and three times did it. And yet Peter, it says in, chapter, in the same chapter in verse number 62, went out and wept bitterly. And even in the text that we've taken, it says, when thou art converted, when you've turned back, when you've repented, he will have an ongoing ministry of strengthening his brethren. I wonder what Jesus had in mind there. How about the writing of 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 5? Did Jesus' prayer exempt Peter from temptation? No. Did it bring success over the devil? No. Satan won that round. But here is what the intercession of Jesus ensured. That after Peter succumbed to the temptation and failed, after he was crushed with overwhelming guilt and despair, that his faith, would be sustained in that darkest night of his soul. This is what Jesus prayed for, and that is what God did. And it makes all the difference between Judas and Peter. He says, I'm praying that though your faith be bruised and though your faith be battered, that it will emerge as a repentant faith. And although Peter's faith was crushed, it did not fail. And it wasn't because of Peter's bravery. It was because of the high priestly intercession of Jesus Christ. Do you feel your own frailty? Do you confess with the writer of the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love? Do you feel yourself to be a walking contradiction? 
If not for his keeping power, I would turn away from the very God that I love. And so, oh, blessed be God for his soul and faith persevering intercession. That intercession was the only thing that kept Peter from going out and hanging himself that night. Or from saying, I can't do this. This discipleship thing is just too hard. He didn't do that. He returned. His faith did not fail. Because Christ prayed for him. The psalmist says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delighteth in his way. Though he fall... He shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. This is what Peter meant when he wrote in 1 Peter 1.5, that believers are kept by the power of God through faith. They're guarded. They're protected Protected with the very power of God. Sovereign, unrivaled power. Think of the power of his grace. All that he's done for us in Christ. All that he's done in us. Think of the power of his providence. His providence like crowing roosters that remind us of his words. His providence that keeps us from falls and work to bring us back from our wanderings and backslidings. How many roadblocks has he put up in your life to save yourself from your own deceptive heart? Think of the power of his intercession. Kept by the power of God through faith doesn't promise to keep us apart from faith. He powerfully sustains our faith, just like we saw him do for Peter here. So our confidence is not in ourselves. Our security is not in ourselves and our own keeping of the faith. Our security is based in in the intercession of the Lord Jesus and the power of God. John Newton recounted a dream that he had in his authentic narrative. He had it when he was a boy, and he never forgot it. He said the dream, in this dream, he was out on a ship in the middle of the ocean. And an angel flew down to him as he was on the ship and presented him with a ring and said, as long as you have this ring, you will be happy and your soul will be safe. Gave him the ring. He put the ring on his finger and he was happy to have this ring in his possession. But then there came a spirit from the ocean out from the depths and began to say to him, that rings nothing but folly. And by deception, 
and by flattery. He at last persuaded him to slip the ring off his finger and to throw it into the ocean. And as soon as that ring hit the ocean in his dream, there was all kinds of a torment of waves crashing and dark clouds descending. And he could see off in the distance the shoreline, a burning city. And then the same spirit who gave him the ring flew back down from heaven, went down into the ocean, fetched his ring, brought it back up to him and said, now you're safe. I've saved the ring. And John Newton said, oh, thank you so much. I'll put it on my finger and I'll never take it off again. I promise. But the angel wouldn't give it to him. And so he said, no, I'll keep the ring. And he clutched the ring and he flew back into heaven. Since no deception of hell could ever get that ring from the angel as long as he was in the heavens. And John Newton used that as an illustration of the security of a believer. If it were up to ourselves to keep ourselves, we would be throwing our ring in the ocean at every deception of Satan. And so God keeps his people. They're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. So the prophet Micah wrote, Therefore I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. And the writer of Hebrews said, Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Let us stand together as we pray. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, how we praise thee for the truth of thy word and for thy keeping grace. Lord, we thank thee for the perfect and powerful intercession of the Lord Jesus. We know, O God, that you are a powerful God and that you are so gracious to keep us when we would never be able to keep ourselves. We've proven over and over how unfaithful we are. And you've proven over and over how faithful you are to your promises and to the likes of us. You're so full of mercy. And we praise thee. And we ask thee to strengthen our faith and our commitment in the Lord Jesus. And to strengthen our faith, especially when we find ourselves in the sifting of Satan. Oh Lord, we pray that we would trust thee in the darkness. And we pray that our confidence would not be in the flesh, but only in God. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.